Hey, everybody, welcome to another edition of the Anything But Typical podcast. And in quite anything but typical fashion, this is anything but typical because we're supposed to be recording Devin Klein of Burden Boot Camp today. And unfortunately, life happened and he got sick. So guess what? We're going to still have a program. Yes, we'll bring you Devin Klein because his story is unbelievably interesting. But we're going to talk today about this thing called imposter syndrome. You may call it self-limiting beliefs. You may call it internal villains. But imposter syndrome, it continues to get some gain some ground out there. And the reason that I think we need to talk about it is because every CEO that I've talked to, that I've either coached or has confided in me, that I've worked with, that dropped their guard has dealt with this. And so if you're listening to this, you don't have to be a CEO for this to pertain to you because they say at least 70% of the population deals with it. So we'll talk about, well, what is it? I want to hear from Ben McDonald because he sold his first company when he was 24. So, you know, he was a young entrepreneur. I know I was wrestling with it in a big way at age 28 when I was brought in to do my first turnaround. And then we'll talk a little bit more about it. But again, like some of the most accomplished CEOs that I've known that were willing and that kind of self-disclosed to me, Gary, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm thinking, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> and, and so we're going to talk about that because I think it, it has value. And the more I've talked with other people and their struggles, especially when you're an entrepreneur, especially when you're doing something new that hasn't been done before or that you didn't really get the training that you felt like you needed in order to do it. But now all of a sudden you're in uncharted territory and you don't know what you're doing. These th thoughts and these feelings can be overwhelming. So that's my little preamble. Ben, we'll take it wherever you want to go. <laughs> well, before we even jump into this, though, this topic means so much to you. You wrote a book about it. And so I think the listeners need to to at least hear a little bit about this because Gary wrote a book. It is actually in the process of being published. It's already finalized. It's coming out in October. So we're we're a little over a month away from the listeners being able to have access to this. And, and it's called Silence the Imposter Syndrome, Seven Weapons to Silence Imposter Syndrome. And Gary, you and I talk about a lot of different business topics and you hear as you're coaching people different issues that they're coming up with why did this one stand out more than all of the other top right we've talked leadership and growth and acquisitions and culture what made this one stand out to be the, the topic you're going to write your book about or wrote your book about well i had no intention of ever even writing a book if i did i i thought <laughs> after I caught my par partner embezzling money, I would write a book called In Bed with a Rhino because that's that's what it was like. I was like, holy moly. But that was, and there've been plenty of people that I've met with since then that have also been through betrayal, partner betrayal and embezzlement and that kind of horrific stuff. But that's an external villain, if you will. The, the internal villain of 
this imposter syndrome. And a lot of, some people may go, well, what is that? Well, just think about these questions that may come through your mind of, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm in over my head. I'm a fraud. I mean, that, that one, you know, seems to be pretty resounding, but it's, it's usually more on this. I really don't know what I'm doing. And if people just knew this or that about me, they'd think less, less of me, or I'm the leader. I'm supposed to know what I'm doing, but man, I really don't. What do I do? Like that is a very, very common theme that every CEO, like I said, that has confided in me. Now I've worked with one CEO that was a sociopath and I did not know what one was until after everything came to light. And what I've heard since then, because I've done a fair amount of research on this um, and you can Google it yourself. There's plenty of resources out there. I don't think narcissists or sociopaths have the awareness or empathy or self just even self-awareness to where it's an issue but for they say 70 percent of the population deals with it so what the impetus was for me is tana green who is one of the most accomplished ceos that i've ever been able to coach um she was a guest on the podcast. She was, I think, our third or second or third she guest. Was early, yeah. Pod- yeah. And uh, at the time, she had three or no, 10,000 W 2 employees, 10,000. And she said, We were talking one time and she said, Gary, I don't know what I'm doing. And I said, What? Are you kidding me? Like, why would you say that, uh, Tana? And, and she said, well, because I only have a two-year secretarial degree. Oh, I said, oh, Tana, you run circles around everybody that I know that has an MBA. I'm not, and I'm not kidding. She's that smart and she's just that intuitive and she's just that good of a leader, but she was still dealing with that. And I thought, man, that was when the light came on for me. Like there's a pattern here because I have suffered from it for way too long from a little kid, quite frankly, always feeling less than, not good enough, et cetera. But it really hamstrung me in my career. And you see this pattern that happens. So that's why I wrote the book. Yeah, you can find plenty of information out there on imposter syndrome from people that have credentials that I don't, quite frankly. But I wanted to write like something practical And I found seven things that in my life have, when you use them in conjunction with one another, they really do silence the the imposter and they kind of help me soar and get past a lot of the stuff that I just either didn't want somebody to know, like I'm a college dropout, those kind of things. Like I had to hide because all of my jobs were, you know, they were advanced degree required and preferred masters. Well, every job I've had had those requirements with the exception of my first two out of college. And so it was always, you know, somebody circumventing the system, somebody that knew me or whatever that got me in. Well, that just exacerbated the issue too. So Gary, as you, you talked about struggling with imposter syndrome when you were younger and now you 
had gone through the process of writing this book, was that almost like a thought experiment? Were you uncovering things to help yourself uh, deal with imposter syndrome? Or what was that process like as you wrote this? You know, it's really interesting. That's a great question. Um, initially, when I started writing the book, again, Tana Green, that was the aha moment. Like, man, so many of these people that are so good that are so amazing, keep saying the same kind of stuff. And I felt that way at 28. Man, I'm in over my head. And that's not when it stopped. I It continued on pretty much in every situation that I was brought into where I had never been before. I felt completely unqualified. And so I thought, I'm going to write this book and I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about, if I was reading this, what are some simple, practical, implementable things that I could do and implement that would make a difference, that have made a difference for me? So that's where I started. But then to your point, it became very like introspective and reflective, which had to naturally bring in some of my own story. So the way I wrote the book was, hey, if you have the attention span of Andy Hilliard, who's been on the podcast, and, and no disrespect, Andy, but uh, you know he has never finished the manuscript. I don't even know if he's finished the manuscript of the book that he wrote or had somebody write for him. But he read my manuscript, and he goes, "Gary, I read the whole thing. It was really I had no idea." And he he knows a lot of my story, but the fact that he read the whole thing, which is great, and it's not a very long book. It's only going to be about 150 pages, so it's not you know it's about a two hour read. But if if that could bring value to somebody like that, that that would be great. So you can read it like if you if you're Andy Hilliard and you want to know, like, what's the one weapon of the seven that I can do right now? Because you can do all of them. But that's will make a bit a big difference. We've talked about it in the past. Thrive with her. You thrive with her. She like it's a yeah. simple T chart that that one weapon is super powerful. So you can do that. If you're Andy Hilliard, or if you just say, hey, give me the seven weapons, you can read all seven weapons, some of the stories behind them, et cetera, in less than probably 30 to 45 minutes. And then if you want to read the rest of it, you can read about my journey. And in that journey, I have from the time I was a kid through my crazy, crazy career experience, you can find these Thrive Wither clues that you can always see retrospectively 2020 yeah hindsight's always 2020 right so i include that but that became very cathartic and again my my fear was i i really don't want this to be about gary fry yeah who who really cares um about and and i'm not trying to be self deprecating it's just that, that in itself is imposter syndrome <laughs> well yeah but but yeah, we all have an interesting story, but to tell another story, you know, okay, I, I want to be providing something that has really helped me, that I know has helped other people. And so that's that's really where it began, and that's kind of where it ended. Yeah, no, I, I, I resonate with it a lot, especially early in my career, right, doing 
doing everything where I was always the youngest person in the room. I there's a couple yes. very early memories of of having imposter syndrome and, and having to deal with that. Um the I think the biggest one the first time was when I was starting the first business. So it was a basketball training company. I was 19 years old. I was a sophomore in college and I wanted to start a business. And I knew there was a gap in the market, but that was about it. And so in order to get uh, kids that were going to join my AAU travel basketball program, I had to be reaching out to athletic directors and coaches that a year and a half prior, they were coaching against me. And now I'm trying, yeah, it was, it was so quick. And now I'm asking them to send their players that are most interested in basketball typically tend to be the the best basketball players just because they're the most focused on it and send them to me and trust me to teach them and coach them and get them college exposure. And I'm coaching kids that are two years younger than me. And and it was, it was a very strange feeling. It was almost like, I mean, for some of them, we played on the same team sometimes and now I'm coaching them. You're the coach. Yeah. And their parents are coming in and obviously all of them are significantly older than me. And I have to act like I should be there. Like I belong. And in my mind, I'm knowing every single minute that it is all a facade. I'm just barely holding it all together, trying to appear like I, the person that belongs there. You just described it to a T, to a T. And this is before your time, Ben, but when I was 30 something, <laughs> when when you were, a, a, you know, just a sparkle in your mother's eye, <laughs> uh, there, there was a, there was a television program. There was a series called 30 something. And it was uh, about an ad, uh, uh, you know, two guys that started an ad agency. And what was funny is I was running an ad agency at that time. And there was a, there was a scene in one of the episodes where the creative director was doing his first television commercial. And he had a bunch of money that a client was putting in a lot of, there's a lot of pressure when you do television commercials. And I'm watching this and I'm going, that's exactly how it feels because you're supposed to be orchestrating this thing. And especially when it's your first time, yeah, you're like, holy moly, I don't know what I'm doing. Help me to get it together. You know, trying to be the duck where you're looking, you know, you're paddling like crazy underneath the surface, but you're trying to be calm on the, on the surface, right? <laughs> you just described that to a T. And I think that's, that's that feeling that like I'm in over my head. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm imposter. So let me ask you this, Ben, how did you deal with that at such a young age of, Hey, I've got this title. I've got this responsibility that typically requires more tenure and more seniority than what you had. Mm-hmm. How did you deal with it besides I'll just fake it till you make it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's certainly a lot of that. Um, so the biggest part of this was probably when I was a 22-year-old athletic director. Because running running the business, at least I was coaching basketball. I had confidence in my knowledge around basketball and strategy and things like that and training. So I felt like an imposter because all the parents were a lot older than me. But the time it hit me the most was... I was uh, 
at the school that I was coaching at when I was 21, they, their athletic director was retiring and they asked me to step in and be the athletic director. Mm. And mm. I go to these meetings and I'm 22 years old and I'm in a room with 60 to 65 year olds. I am 40 plus years younger than these people. <laughs> They've been making a career out of it. And here I am, this 22 year old that just kind of like got put into this position while I'm getting my master's and running a business. Like I had no business being in that room. And the only way that I was able to deal with it is I had to be significantly better than all of them. And for me, it was putting in more hours, more work, almost comp overcompensating for yes. the fact that I felt like I didn't belong there. And over time, that's been able to dissipate a little bit to where I feel more and yeah. more comfortable, right? In it's, it's repetitions, right? The more you do this, the less imposter syndrome, at least for me, that I feel. But that was the peak of it. Me being this 22-year-old in a room of 65-year-old career academic leaders that are all athletic directors. And, and there was that hard work, lots of hours overcompensating to feel like, hey, at least I'm working hard enough to belong, even if I don't actually belong. Man, that is so good. There's a lot of truth in that. And so that takes me back to the people. There, there are two female psychologists in the 70s, way before you were even a glimmer in your mom's Correct. Um, but I was I was a kid in the 70s, in the early 70s. And but these two female psychologists coined the phrase imposter syndrome. And it was because they observed this phenomenon in high achieving women executives. Now think about that. Yep. Women executives, high achievers. And they had these same feelings of, I mean, over my head, I have to work. I have to outwork everybody else, blah, blah, blah. Right. I have to prove. And so I guess there is a benefit to that imposter syndrome because like anybody that has a work ethic it will it'll push you and it definitely pushed me you know my as a kid my friends if you want to call them that called me Mr. Perfect and they teased me because I was always trying to be perfect I was the oldest kid and I wasn't and, and because I knew I wasn't you know but they were thinking no well you you do everything right you know right. well and so we overcompensate. The problem with it is, is it leads to extreme burnout because at some point you can't, it's not sustainable. Yeah. Or even if you're able to achieve and function at a very high RPM for a long time, internally you're getting worn out because mm. there's a conflict between what you know, kind of your behind the scenes reel and the show reel, now we would call it the Instagram reel, right? <laughs> hey, everything's curated and everything's perfect. And hey, but we know our behind the scenes reel and we compare that with everybody else's show reel. That's the problem. And that's where at some point, yeah, that motivation can be a benefit, but it can also be deadly at some point. Yeah, yeah. 
I'm really curious how much of an overlap there is there because I I resonate really strongly with what you just said. The the joke in the family with my siblings and I was that I was the favorite child because I always did what what was supposed to be done from the outside, right? And it was how do I look to others and yeah. and that's exhausting. It it does lead to burnout because your motivation being external means you're doing everything for other people not for yourself. And there's no authenticity there. That's, that's a a version of being fake. And so that will strive for perfection, look really good to the outside and keep that facade up. It definitely goes hand in hand with, uh, with imposter syndrome because you do the same things, right? You, you feel like you're a fake. So you have to figure out a way to look like you actually belong to everybody else because Otherwise, you'll be exposed. Yeah, that, that and being exposed. <laughs> I mean, what is what is that underlying feeling of being exposed? Think about it. What is that emotion? I mean, there's definitely a fear of, of being exposed. Yes. Yes, it's fear. <laughs> and fear is a terrible taskmaster. It, it will drive you from behind and whip you. It's a terrible, it, like, it's a short-term motivator, but it's mm-hmm. a long-term destroyer. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious for you in your, in your journey, did you, did you get to that tipping point of enough's enough? I, I have to stop pretending to try to be perfect and I'm just going to start being more candid and authentic. So for me, no, it wasn't just like a, whoop, you know. Yeah, yeah it wasn't it was, a flip the switch. No, it was a phased approach, like certain things. Um, when I was at Bank of America, you know, there was a there, there was a, a moment where, you know, w- w- when you work for a a big bank, you get you you get finger fingerprinted, and they go through your whole career chronology. Well. Fingerprints, no problem, because I've never had a record of any sort. Um, But the career chronology was what was terrifying to me, because I had to disclose one, even though this job is master's preferred, I'm a college dropout. I got two years of college. Yeah, Yeah, they could see that my GPA was like 3.92. But I didn't talk about the fact that I didn't have a completed degree. So, you know, that is revealed. Second thing that's revealed is I have a partner embezzlement. Why did you leave your own agency that had your name on the door? Well, I had to reveal that. I come to Charlotte, North Carolina, and six months into the gig of after bringing a $2 million account to this guy, and I'm an owner, if you will, the guy stiffs me on 30 grand and I get shown the door. So I've got a gap of employment. So I had three months, three, I think three months of unemployment. Now I I didn't even file for unemployment because first of all, there's not enough money, you know, to, I couldn't take, you couldn't even buy groceries for my family. Um, But it's embarrassing. And so, but it's all laid out there. They'd already hired me. They completely circumvented the HR processes because they targeted me specifically. So when I said that, I mean, I literally wanted to cry 
Um, and I asked my boss, I said, look at this. You know, I mean, this is embarrassing. Why would you even hire me? I mean, I, I literally wanted to cry and just run out of the room. And she said, Gary, I'm not really good at a lot of things, but one thing I'm really good is identifying talent. And she said, I've looked you up six ways to Sunday and I found all kinds of mutual connections, six degrees of separation. And she said, I look for somebody that's been kicked in the teeth and has come back at least twice. And, and you've done that in spades. And she said, I'm not very good in a lot of things, but she, she really was. But she said, this I'm really good at. And she goes, I know I made a great hire here. Yep. And what was interesting is that really set me free in, in many ways. But I was still working with people that had graduated from Yale and MBAs from Northwestern. I mean, Andy Hilliard, who I had to fire, which we've talked about on this podcast, he had an MBA from Northwestern. You know, I mean, he was Perrier brand manager for, and Nestle. And like he had this amazing resume and I had to fire this guy. And, you know, I wasn't so. I, I revealed it to, to her, but I didn't feel like I could with my peers. It was just too, I had to guard it too much. And then finally, so there were, there, there's been kind of a stripping in my career where a number of things that I talk about in the book, the, the seven weapons, which are really simple things, um, have really kind of layered in. And one of those things, and I think it's the fifth weapon, which is gratitude journal. I learned that when I lost everything in 09, when, when my world was completely devastated, when our private equity firm blew up, you know, my wife didn't leave me and my kids didn't abandon me and I didn't lose my house, but I lost everything else. And um, it was in those times when we had lawsuits flying and all kinds of awful things. I just didn't want to wake up in the morning, you know, and I had to find something to be grateful for. And I think that was a that that gratitude and finding something to be grateful for and surrendering all these things that were completely outside of my control. We had FINRA investigations. We had all kinds of awful things happening. That was another like super powerful weapon that probably saved my life, quite frankly, because uh, I wasn't looking too good at that time. Right. I had people, uh, one of my friends that saw me in, in Chagrin Falls in our little village and said, man, you look like you're going to die. And I said, I kind of, wish I would, you know, um, I wasn't actively con contemplating suicide, but it was just hard to wake up every morning knowing that, all right, who's suing us today and how bad can it get, you know? Yep. Yeah. And, and when you're in something like that, every little thing is piling on, right? It's not, it feels like you don't get any, any break, from from that type of situation so to be able to snap out of that is not an overnight thing or like we said earlier it's not flipping the switch you just got to slowly do these things to to be able to get back to baseline and then be able to go from there yeah you know i think there i was just with somebody today that has had a couple light switch moments you know that were like transformational that just wasn't for me, for me, it was like a lot of grinding and a lot of 
um, pulverizing, if you will. And that's not meant to be a downer. It's just been my path. But man, the things that I've learned have been so amazing. And I think the, the other thing that was really interesting, that private equity firm that blew up, we had 300 ultra high net worth families in that group. And owners of major league sports teams, some very notable names, and then the the billionaire type people, you would never know them. You wouldn't even know that they had any money, you know. Um, but I learned so much from them. And I learned, you know, the mystique that I came into that group thinking that wealth meant this and aloofness and uh, Maseratis and, you know, Lamborghinis and all that, like not even close, you know, the, the, yeah. the, that was not even in their repertoire at all. Uh, but they, they were humble. They had brokenness, you know, they had all experienced tragedy and it, it changed my mindset. So there was another breakthrough moment actually at that place that, that is also in the book. It's another one of the weapons and it's weapon number four, which is focus more on serving someone than how they perceive you, man. And that was a breakthrough moment for me. It was one of the weapons, but again, I think, I don't know that there's a magic bullet of those seven weapons, but when called for, it's kind of like you don't go on a golf course. Well, first of all, I don't go on a golf golf course anymore (laughs) ever. But you don't go on a golf course with one, you know, with a pitching wedge and that's it. Yeah, It's just going to be frustrating. You've got different clubs for different situations. And that's that's why I think this the thing with the seven weapons. But just this when we focus on how somebody's perceiving us. We're in trouble, I think, because especially if imposter syndrome is worrisome or has been a problem because we get our eyes focused on us. But if we focus on serving somebody and we really make that our intention, wow, amazing things happen. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden we lose ourselves and we're not focused on, well, how do you perceive me? Do you like the way I look? You know, am I wearing the right shoes? Am I wearing the right glasses? Does my hair look okay? Is there something funky in my teeth? No, it's just like, focus on serving somebody. And I think Mother Teresa did that probably as good as anybody that I can think of in recent history. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that that I love about how you've laid out the book, and, and really it's why I enjoy consuming content like biographies and autobiographies and bits, business and philosophy books so much, is just like you said there of the, the serving people is one of the weapons But when you first discovered that it wasn't a, hey, I discovered it immediately. This is all hindsight, right? This is years and years of your experience. And now I can listen to a podcast or read a book or somebody's going to be able to go through your book. And for them, it can be a light switch moment because it's piggybacking off of your years and years of experience and discovering that this is a weapon to help with imposter syndrome. And I think that is invaluable when it comes to a reason to consume content yeah i think that's a really good point that was one of the the many things that i learned from this really high net worth and especially they were all entrepreneurs you know a a few of them 
Yeah, we had the CEO of Sitco Petroleum and we had, you know, some high power oil execs and that kind of stuff. But most of them, most of them were run of the mill people like you and me that had an idea, took a family business or they just started, you know, did something because they loved this or that or they fell into it. Or many times they say, I was just lucky, but they they took something. But they, what I, what I was fascinated by this group of people was they were lifetime learners, lifetime learners. I mean, one of the guys in our group was a guy named Joe Cappy, and he was the last CEO of American Motors and Dollar and Thrifty Rent-A-Car. And in his 80s, and I've got his book back there, it's called The Last American CEO. And he hadn't even writ- written it yet. When I was meeting with him, he was in his 70s early seventies. Um, and he, he didn't need to work, you know, he could play golf and he actually liked to play golf. And I think he was probably pretty good at it, but he probably played golf two times a a week and that was it. But he was very involved in helping his sons run their businesses. They had some high line car businesses in Atlanta and he lived in Tulsa. Um, and I, I, I just was fascinated by these folks that many would say, especially when I was in my 20s and 30s, like, oh, man, they're old. No, not not necessarily. They're very young at heart and their their minds were sharp. They wanted to make sure that they were engaged and they they had purpose behind what they were doing. They had a sense of it's not get all you can, can all you get and sit all on the can. You know, it was it was about investing in the lives of other people and making the world a better place. That was what really um, impressed a lot upon me. And I, I was reading a lot by then, but even more so, I think, after meeting them, to your point, it's like, man, you can, I love just having dinner or coffee with these people. And a lot of times I would travel to their city to meet with them. And so we got to have some extended period of time. And I just love to sit and soak and learn from them, ask them questions. That's what I love, love so much about this podcast. I right. mean, yep. right. Yeah. I, I remember first starting the first podcast and it was right after hearing Tim Ferriss, who I, I listened to a lot of his episodes uh, real early on. He talked about why he started a podcast and People had told him to do it for a long time, and he finally decided, I'm just going to ask questions that I'm interested in, because if nobody else listens to it, there's an audience of one. And realistically, there's other people that are curious about the same things. So it's a cool part about us being able to to run this podcast together is we get to have really interesting conversations with really interesting people, and we get to learn from them, and hopefully our listeners get to, get to learn from their stories and lessons also. But... Yeah. But Gary, one of the things that I'm really curious about on your thoughts with with imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome can be a massive deterrent, right? It's yourself internally telling yourself that you're not good enough to do something. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think are some of the reasons why people push through that deterrent and say, okay, I I feel this imposter syndrome, but I'm going to continue, right? I, I'm going to start the business anyway, or I'm going to take in my case, I'm going to take the athletic director job and I'm going to figure it out. Well, 
why and how do you think these people are are pushing through that that strong deterrent? I think that the answer to that question is probably as varied as the uniqueness of yeah. our thumbprints. <laughs> I was kind of thinking the same thing. Oh, I, I really do. Like, it's almost like a something in everybody's past, right? That is, yeah. and, and I'm sure you have have your reasons why you push, and I, I certainly could share mine as well, but I think you're right. I think it has something to do with people's backgrounds and they all have their own unique reason or motivator to continue pushing forward. Yeah, and, and you know, this really goes to Simon Sinek's The Why, you know. Mm. Start with why. And if we get really honest with ourselves, that can be quite revealing. It can be quite humbling. It can be quite empowering. But I think that's where it has to begin. Like, why? If if I would have looked early on and I said, all right, so Gary, why are you doing things? I was the I was the first uh, I don't even talk about this in the book, but I was the first um, municipal swimming pool manager. Like so we had a little 16,000 person town and we had this big swimming pool that was built during the WPA during World War Two. And it was kind of the gathering place for all these blue collar kids. And um, that that pool always ran at a deficit. It never, it was always in the, in the red. Well, I was the first one to turn a profit in it. And, and it was, it wasn't because I'm a, a whiz guy with finance. That's not my thing, but it was just like, well, well, where's all the money going? Because we have, you know, we're making money. And I found out that it was all my lifeguards eating all the profits. They were eating all the stuff out of the snack bar. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. So I knew our high profit margins were soda pop, popcorn, and snow cones. So I said, all right, guys, you can have as much of any of those as you want. But one candy bar and that's it. And what was funny is like, this is really bad, but some of the female lifeguards, they were eating lots of candy bars. <laughs> it's <laughs> funny, but like that was, so what was my motivator for that? At that point is like, I just saw the challenge. Like this is, this seems unjust. Like why, why would a, a pool be losing money that is providing so much value? Now, as I got older, I felt like I needed to prove myself. You know, that was a completely different motivator. And then at one point, it wasn't even about proving myself. It was about hiding the fact that I didn't have the credentials everybody else did. So right. it was kind of proving. But then it became more like, wait a minute. I want to make a difference. So when I wrote my purpose in 2003, you know, reading um, Rick Warren's book, Purpose Driven Life, was a foundational and pivot point for me. Cause he challenged me to like, write it out. Yeah. We all like, everybody has a plan in between their head, but like their ears, but it's like succession planning in with businesses. Every owner thinks they have a succession plan, but it, they don't have one unless their people know what it is, you know, and that they know who's opening the door if you get hit by a bus. So 
when I wrote that down and I got as simple as I just want to make a positive difference in the lives of others. I want to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. That's Micah 6.8. But I had plenty of guys that had really screwed me that would say even those words, you know? Yeah. And so I didn't want just those words. I wanted to know, well, did I make a difference? Because if I didn't, and I said those words, I'm just a fraud. But if I did like that, that's the litmus test. Would my wife or children, the people that know me best, that know my good, bad and ugly say, yeah, he made a difference. Our lives are better because of him. Oh. And for me, I could transfer that into any industry, any any company, even when I felt like I was in over my head. If I just focused, well, wait a minute, you know, let's go serve somebody, make a positive difference. Then it got my eyes off of my insecurities, my failures, my less thans, if you will. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a super great question. And I would challenge anybody listening to this, ask yourselves, what's your why? Yeah. And, and don't just flippantly do it five minutes in between, you know, on television commercials. Spend some time ruminating over it. Yeah. And it may be changing from time to time in phases of your life. Yeah. And, and to your stories right there, it, it did, right? It was different things along the way. But if your why is more powerful than that internal voice telling you that you're not good enough and that you're an imposter, the why is going to win. But if you don't have a why, it's going to be easy to be thrown off the track that you want to be on you have no reason to stick with it yeah yeah you know that was another thing that i learned kind of in a crucible it, when when this company that private equity firm blew up i had um our first million dollar investor in the holding company that had come in and he called me and he said gary i want you to get out of there and this he had kind of a premonition <laughs> and he's like um he said i have a feeling this thing's gonna go down and um and then after it started blowing up he said gary you got to get out of there you're going to be stuck holding a, a flaming bag of poop is what he said <laughs> and and i said don i know but i said if i leave there's nobody else to hold like i was the relational glue i that was part of my job i knew all these 300 families and i said if so, somebody's got to stand in the gap and it wasn't because I felt like, you know, Superman, I felt less than. And, um, but I said, who else is going to do it? He goes, it doesn't matter. It's not your job. You don't have to do it. Well, that why, and th that's the difference between conviction and preference. I mean, I learned conviction and I actually, it's ironic. I learned it from him because he told me that when he put his first, that first million dollars into the holding company, he told the founder, he gave him his word he was going to do it. And he was an oil and gas guy from Houston. And um, he had this bad feeling that night. I, I just, I'm going to torch this. Like, this is a million dollars. It's just getting torched. And he called the founder and he said, listen, I gave you my word. 
I don't, I think this is, you know, I think I'm just getting ready to light this million dollars on fire, but I'm going to honor my word because, and he, he, he referenced a Psalm that said, a, a, a you know, a, or maybe it was a proverb that said a wise man or a righteous man swears to his own hurt, meaning he basically honors his own word, even if it hurts. And sure enough, he it, like he did it, it. And it wasn't like he had bazillions and bazillions of dollars. He he wasn't our wealthiest guy by by a long shot, but he honored his word. And that that sense of conviction is what will stick. That sense of conviction will push through the fire, whereas preference, once the heat gets turned up, man, you run. Yep you run that's so good the difference between conviction and preference it's powerful yeah so what what have we not hit on with imposter syndrome or anything related to this topic that you want to make sure we're talking about well one thing that i you know so anybody listening to this I want you to know, first of all, you're not alone. That's actually the first weapon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's there's a whole quiet group of us suffering through imposter syndrome, and not talking about it. <laughs> and 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 so you know, they say misery love loves company, but I don't think that's even the the issue. I think the issue is when we get isolated and we think that we are all alone, and that nobody knows the trouble we've seen. Yeah, we've all had different experiences and we probably haven't seen the exact trouble you have. However, when we get isolated, that's when the imposter gets really loud. But right. when we kind of expose it and we're we're vulnerable and and guess what? Humility is the most beautiful human trait I think I've ever seen. Like humility and love, they they really do go hand in hand together because humility is not about yourself. It's about right. somebody else and and love co coincides with that. So I just say, man, just realize you're not alone. And I think the best visual picture that I've ever seen about this, and this would be another thing that I would say is like comparison kills gratitude. Like, don't ever forget when I start comparing myself to somebody else, either I'm going to get prideful because, oh, look how good I am versus them. But many times we're looking up and we see the Instagram reels of everybody else. Oh, and that's how life should be. I heard a guy today at lunch saying, yeah, he goes, you know, I, I have my kids. People tell me, yeah, you have the best behaved kids, blah, blah. But he's like, man, if they just knew these guys are terrors at times, you know, like I got three and they're out of control. I'm like, well, that's exactly it. So picture a one inch circle. And in that one inch circle, it says what I know. And encompassed or encompassing that one inch circle is a five foot circle. And in that five foot circle, it says what I think everyone else knows. Yeah. <laughs> the reality is we all know one inch. You know, what what I know is just really one inch. It's pretty finite. But when we conflate what everybody else knows, what we think, that's when we're comparing somebody else's show reels versus our reel are behind the scenes real. We know, we know those thoughts. We know those self-limiting beliefs. We know the history. We know our failures. We know the less thans. 
but you can get past that, but you got to realize that that's what's going on. Because if we allow ourselves to continue to be driven, so go back to your example of, you know, you're in your early twenties and you're around the table with 60 people, 60 year old people, and you got to prove yourself. You did, you gutted it out. You pushed harder. You had to outwork everybody, but that is a driver and just realize at some point that that driver that can bring some success can also eat you alive. And that's what I really want to have stopped as much pot as possible, because man, you're unique. You're, you know, you were, you were formed and fashioned uniquely and beautifully. And we can, we can drop our guards with one another with the right people and realize it's okay to celebrate your uniqueness and celebrate the uniqueness of other people instead of comparing, just celebrate them. Yeah. So th that would be a lasting like thought mm -hmm. for somebody listening to that, you know? Yeah. To, to that That's point, actually another one of the weapons. <laughs> right. I'll tell you which one it is. <laughs> you can, you can get the book and find out. Um, no, to that point, I, I think who you're surrounded by is, is huge with all this, right? First off, if you're isolated, all you're going to have is everybody else's Instagram reel. And that in itself is going to be really negative. And yeah. then the other is if you're surrounded with people who are closed-minded and negative, because that wears on you. So being around people that are authentic and self-aware and positive and motivated and goal-oriented, that is contagious. And so you're naturally going to feel better, think clearer, and, and be able to push through when you have those down moments, which everybody has, right? We're all human. We're all going to have those days when we really don't want to get out of bed and put in the work again, or we don't want to lace up the shoes and go for a run, or we'd rather order food than, uh, than cook something that's going to be healthier for us. And so the more you're surrounded with the right people, it's it becomes a superpower right that makes you a better person in turn man you nailed it you nailed it that was another thing that i learned from these high net worth um I'm entrepreneurs sure. they surrounded themselves with people that they could trust now they kept their circles very tight the richer they were the smaller that circle had to be because you there are too many people that wanted a piece of them, you know, they, well, at that point something. too, it becomes a quantity or I mean a quality, not quantity game, right? You don't need a hundred best friends. That's not going to be the case, but if you yeah. find the people you trust, they trust you and you can be yourself around them. That's your circle. That That's exactly right. And I, I would say people that can respectfully challenge you. Yeah. So that you're not just surrounded by you know an echo chamber of people spewing the same stuff and uh, unfortunately i think covid has like exacerbated that pushed it, people into their own echo chambers where they can only tolerate people that have the same exact you know five things and then when they find the sixth thing that is different then boom you get spewed out of the echo chamber like that's ridiculous that's not how that that's truly not diversity Right. Um, diversity truly is being able to embrace somebody with a counter thought and show respect and feel like, hey, man, I can learn from you. And perhaps you can learn something from me, too. 
and, and yeah, so I th I think that that isolation chamber, man, that 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 just really gives voice to the imposter. And so you brought up a really important point. And look at the people that you admire the most. They probably are part of a peer-to-peer -peer group. They 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 probably have um, an insatiable curiosity and love to read, love to learn from others. You know, those that have it all fig figured out, they aren't going to be listening to this podcast anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. And, and the more you're around that, the the more you realize you're not alone. You're not the only one dealing with imposter syndrome or anything like that. It's everybody goes through that type of stuff. So this. Yeah. This episode has been a lot of fun, Gary. We could you and I yeah, could, been could riff, we could riff on topics for a while. <laughs> So for the listeners, yeah. we'll we'll get back to to your your regularly scheduled programming. Um, but this intermediate uh episode that we kind of had to put together because unfortunately Devin wasn't feeling well has uh this has been a ton of fun. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks, Ben, for being instant in season and flexible. It's pivot time every once in a while. That's kind of the way life is, isn't it? And um so yeah, we could have made excuses. I texted you uh, when I got the email from Devin and just it, I was laughing as I was sending you the text message because that's just the way life is. Right. And if we get all worked up about it, it's unnecessary stress. So we're going to roll with it and come out with something like this. That's exactly right. Yeah, we could have made the excuse because there's a natural excuse of oh, Devin doesn't feel good. So sorry, guys, we'll we'll postpone. But and it's not like people are, you know, going to lose their lives if we don't publish this. But. <laughs> you know, I'd rather make a little progress than make an excuse. So let's keep making progress. Even it's a little bit. Yeah, that's, that's perfect. Well, to all the listeners, thanks as always for, for listening and tuning in. I appreciate it. Gary and I, we have a great time with this. So, so you guys listening and being along for the ride is, uh, is greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks everybody for listening. Yeah. You too, Gary. Can't wait for everybody to be able to get access to your book.